Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know what you've done Good evening and welcome to the Stop Child Abuse Now show on the Blog Talk Radio Network sponsored by the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Bill and I'll be your host tonight I'm going to talk all about topics that involve NASCA, and we'd like you to call in to form a panel who will describe and be critical of NASCA's tools, programs, and services. Just call in to participate or to suggest a topic. The number to dial is 646-595-2118. 646-595-2118. On these episodes, we welcome various co-hosts, survivor professionals who will assist in fielding questions that lead a variety of topics suggested by our participants. The trauma-informed perspectives of these people will help them guide discussions on issues of child abuse, trauma, and healthy human sexuality that springs from questions and topics brought to us by our listeners. Everyone's invited to engage on tonight's show. Please visit the NASCA.org website for interesting topics and maybe for an idea of an issue. Our mission statement reads as follows. We have a single purpose at NASCA to address issues related to child abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, also known as CSA, presenting facts that show child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone who is interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Now on Friday night, we normally have a special guest who tells their story, uh, uh, and uh, that's not gonna happen tonight. We couldn't find someone for tonight. So we're doing this topic-driven uh, discussion show, basically. It's a, it's a discussion and question and answer show. But anything involving NASCA itself and our mission um, is, you know, it can can generate the discussion that we're going to have. I do see I have one very good panelist with me. <clears throat> She's been with us for years. 
Although in the interim, she disappeared for a while. Now she's back and becoming more regular again. Uh, She recently moved from Long Island, New York, to Pennsylvania. Uh, And I'm very familiar with Pennsylvania. I went to high school there. Her name is Lori Purcell, and I'd like to invite her to this show and thank her for calling in. Lori, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. I'm always glad to help out with this. You do a wonderful job there. I know you are, and I really, I really do appreciate it. So, now we don't have anybody else um, yet. Maybe we'll get some as we go along. But as um, I, I'm just going to tell people that this, we'll leave the line open six four six five nine five two one one eight for the whole show, and you can call in whenever you like. Perhaps we'll hit a note that you'd like to uh, participate in or comment on, and if so, please do call in six four six. Five nine five two one one eight. Uh, Laurie, I'm going to begin the show tonight with uh, something that was suggested as a topic, and um, I don't uh, I don't know how you feel about it. But let me let me just tell you what it was. We were going to uh, uh, we were going to uh, uh, have suggested that um, there's a east east representative Eastman who's, who who uh, Asked a potential question <laughs> that um, that somebody wanted us to, to consider discussing, and the question was this: Should we um, should we uh, consider the potential economic benefits of the deaths of, of child abuse victims? Now, that's right. I said the benefits of the deaths of abused victims, and this comes from uh, Alaska, by the way. Representative Eastman from Alaska uh, sparked outrage after he talked after he brought this up, and the whole idea is uh, he's from Wasilla. I'm going to read just a couple paragraphs so that we can have the conversation. Wasilla Republican R- Representative David Eastman sparked outrage outlining uh, online after he discussed, asked whether there should could be economic benefits to the death of abused children. He asked a series of questions during a Monday House Judicial Committee hearing hearing on adverse childhood experiences, which we know what that is, and we can discuss that in a minute too, such as physical and sexual abuse on children or growing up in a household marred by domestic violence and how they can be negatively affected uh, affected to a person throughout their lives. As part of the presentation, documents were given to legislatures estimating that when a child child abuse is fatal, it could cost the family and, and society, broader society, $1.5 million in terms of trauma and what the child would potentially have earned over the lifetime. It can be argued periodically, he said, that it is actually a cost savings because that child is not going to need any of the government services that they might otherwise be entitled to, uh, to receive and need based on growing up in this type of environment. Uh, so, can you say that again? They said, "What? What did you say? Benefit in society?" <laughs> said, uh, "Yes, the loss would be immeasurable to society, to families who experienced this. But if they were not uh, to survive, <laughs> in other words, if they were euthanized, um, then we would actually save a, a, a serious amount of money per kid." And um, that's the topic. Okay. Um, now, I have my own opinions about it, but before I 
get get them out. Let me uh, ask uh, Lori what she thinks about this as a as a as a pro- proposition. What do you think? As unusual as it sounds, I totally understand it. Um, my son actually got into explaining the whole thing uh, to me just like you know not long ago at all. Um, the way it came out, I think, was a little bit tough for anybody to swallow because, you know, putting a price on the life, um, you know, for the potential of the victim because they didn't get to live out their life, it's just kind of unnerving. Um, But, you know, what it comes down to also, if this guy would look, I mean, this whole thing, and if there were no um, abuse survivors seeking out therapy there would be no jobs for therapists or these kinds of psychiatric doctors or the whole field of people, and that's how a lot of people make money. So it, it's a give-and-take kind of thing, and I really don't think that a child that and his, his life ended um, can be put a price on because you never know what that child is about. You know, you, we're all born unique, I mean, and... Some of us go far, and some of us go far even with the abuse. So, like, how would you even put a price on that? That's the part that really got to me. Like, how do you All figure right, well, that part out? Well, you know, they they have done estimates on the on the cost uh, for a lifetime of a child that has been abused, and it's it's many millions, uh, and. You know, so this is this is considering one and a half million when there's a birth, when there's a death involved, be a savings. You know, uh, in fact, let me read another paragraph or two here, and we'll get uh, maybe a little more sense of what he was saying. He recounted that he and his wife had adopted a child from a foster care system who had several adverse child experiences, childhood experiences. He said it would not have been indicated, but it may not have been intended, but the implication from the comments was that his child was better off dead. <laughs> I would say for me personally, quote, that my child is the greatest joy I've ever had, that no price tag could be on it, he said while he was choking up. But uh, one of the other representatives, uh, Sarah Vance, who chairs the House Judiciary Committee, thank Craig for staring us to share story, but neither Vance nor Eastman apologized. Now, we need to back up just a little to to tell people who may not be informed like you are what adverse childhood experiences are, A-C-E, ACEs. uh, ACEs relate to uh, adverse conditions that can happen to a child as he he or she grows up. There was a, a doctor uh, who created what became known as the ACEs test. It was 10 questions that were asked of a person taking the survey, uh, had, they, had they experienced this or that? And if they answered yes, that was worth one point. They answered no, that was worth no points. And the idea was the closer you got to 10 points, uh, the more likely it was that you would experience uh, very bad difficulties when you grew up. So the questions were things like, do you come from a house where there was domestic violence? And you have to answer yes or no. Or do you come do you come from a house where at least one of the parents was once incarcerated? Yes or no. 
do you come from a house where one of the parents was an alcoholic, yes or no, and so forth. And again, there were 10, you know, sort of innocuous questions, but it's but obvious that uh, the, the, the question answered yes was more likely to um, result in a child having difficulty in their life. So that's what an ACE score is. And there are many of us that have gotten 10 out of 10 if we answered this, uh, you know, honestly. And then there were others that might have earned, you know, 7 out of 10 or 4 out of 10 or whatever it was. But the higher the score, the more likely the child would have bad experiences in their future life when they were uh, an adolescent and a young adult and so on. So that's what an ACE score is. And what they're saying is the higher the ACE score, the more likely the person's um, going to experience problems. The higher the ACE score, then does that mean that uh, the more likely they, they should be euthanized? Because, you know, if you have 8 out of 10, that's pretty that's pretty common that, it, 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 that uh, you know, you would have difficulties and cause expense is really the reason here. Uh, cause expense to society as you grew up. So I just wanted to clear that up in case there were people wondering, what's an ACE score? <laughs> um, I think you have a very high ACE score. I think that we've heard you talk about your story often enough to assume that. Have you ever taken the ACE test, the ACE study test? No, definitely, you know, just from what I see. And, yeah, I would be one of the persons that they would want to euthanize because uh, I hit too many of the the answers yes. So, exactly. uh, yeah, yeah, I don't feel that that should be somebody else's choice. You know, if right. I want to take myself out, I'll do it myself. You know, that's the way that should work. Um, right. But like I said, we've gone through so much, and yet we we're at our age, and you know, we're both up there, and um, we're functioning. You know, so mm-hmm. you can't really. He has more of like a give up attitude. You know, that this is going to happen because of this and nothing else is going to change and it's just going to go downhill and that'll be the end of it. He thinks everybody's just going to, you know, fail. And that's not the way it always works out. There are so many success stories that uh, I think he's a bit jaded. I honestly do. And I don't know what his experience was that made him that way, aside from, you know, the adopted child. And, you know, from his point of view, there's a little bit of emotion that's missing with that. Um, you know, I, I've mentioned on here I've had uh, a foster child, a special needs foster child. I also had a special needs son. Um, uh, opinions that come from the outside who don't actually know the person and whatnot, to me, they don't, they don't mean a lot because uh, you have to experience a person face-to-face and then you can, like, have an opinion about the person. It's just too much you know, on black and white, and black and white isn't how we live. You know, we live person to person. So, right. yeah, I yeah, I I would be gone. Right. If, let me let me go down a little more, and, and and again fill in some of the blanks because it's a it's a you know pretty shocking kind of premise that this guy has taken, but they took it seriously up to a certain point, and then they said the leadership of the Republican-dominated House majority caucus has not met yet to discuss with Eastman whether he'll be punished for his comments. So they, they didn't they didn't feel it was appropriate. Eastman was not invited to join the House majority and his requests to join the caucus were rebuffed. Veteran lawmaker said he is alienated every caucus he has joined with his no compromise approach to legislation 
and his tendency to use his newsletters to harangue his GOP colleagues. <laughs> um, as a minority of one, Eastman is not entitled to serve on any of these legislative committees. Uh, and uh, he would be unrecognized in the minority as well because he's, he's a Republican. Um, and, and nobody really believes in, in the uh, premise that he put forward. I wish that he asked the questions with a little more sensitivity to the listeners, it was said, and how they were perceived. I can have that conversation. I can have that conversation, but there's his own. Is there on his own? But he's on his own accord and only represents himself. Vance, who is an abortion opponent, said she could not speak for Eastman, uh, but she believed that he was trying to make a pro-life argument. He said many. She said many people consider abortion to be child abuse, and that the abortion supporters have that terminating a pregnancy would be a better option than raising a kid in difficult situations. So that's another layer of the thought. Now, I should say, before we um, discuss it further, that this does not fit neatly at all into the discussion that, that we might have with NASCA if we were strictly staying on our topics, on our issue. Because as I read in the mission statement, uh, we we don't um, discuss things outside the issue. And by the way, you know we talk about only issues related to child abuse and trauma. Maybe this is, could be stretched to think about that, but I think it's more about you know the, the, <laughs> I think it's more about um, uh, addressing uh, budget shortages and things like that than it is about the benefit of the child. Because you know I I don't think anybody would say you know it's better for the child to be killed than to have to go on to experience, you know, a tough adulthood. That's not how, that's not how Americans certainly think. Um, and in fact, this is kind of similar to the uh, preposition that we've heard before, Laurie, uh, that uh, people would say uh, in a knee-jerk way that uh, as far as pedophiles are concerned, they ought to bring them all out into the courtyard and shoot them, which I've heard many people say. That's because they're so hurt by by the experiences they had, and of course it is true that child child abuse is a child an adverse childhood experience. Obviously, whether it's sexual, violent abuse, you know, emotional or through neglect, it's it is child abuse. It, it's it's an adverse child experience. These these things are not in the list of ten, but they are actually predict the ten questions are the predictors of whether you'll have a problem in life. Maybe maybe I should say it more like that. But anyway, I've heard lots of people who, when we talk about uh, predators, say, uh, you know, pedophiles ought to be shot. And they, and they mean it. They're serious when they say it. Most of the time when that comes up, the majority of people who hear the conversation or engage in it will, you know, will, will agree that there's not very uh, much chance of changing the predilection that a pedophile has for sex with children that the best um, we've ever come up with as a society so far, and we've tried lots of things, is um, to incarcerate them, is to separate them from society incarceration-wise, and then to uh, keep them, you know, incarcerated. In fact, there are lots of prisons that have separate sections, as you probably know, Lori, that are specifically for sexual offenders, because if you put them in with the general population, <laughs> the general population does not like these guys, and they will—they'll kill them. Really, um, they'll beat them up and kill them. So why not give them their own section? And many states have done that. Uh, but 
as soon as they're released, um, they're uh, they're prone to re re uh, offend, and they're they're prone to be attacked themselves in society if they're found out. Uh, you know, if, if people go around and they put people on the um, they put folks who are on the on the abuse list, um, you know, um, on flyers and put it around the neighborhood when they move there, that person will have a terrible time living in the community. Uh, in fact, vigilante type people will sometimes, you know, come after them. But anyway, uh, as I say, the premise is that, you know, pedophiles ought to be shot because we know there's no getting over them. Well, there's no getting past them. Uh, but in the same sense, should a, should a child abuse victim become, be shot or however they were going to eliminate them? Because there's, there's no escaping that every child abuse victim has trauma. I mean, I would agree with that statement. Every child abuse victim does experience trauma. And that trauma in various ways can go out into the community and affect the community around them. So what do you think about what I just said about the pedophiles and whether we should eliminate them as well? <laughs> well, I do separate them um, in my mind. As you know, I, my father was one, and I also had the other abuse from the rest of the family violently. It's a different type of abuse. A pedophile, um, they will not change because it's them. You know, they're born like that, and there is no hope for them. And because of the situation I went through, I'd be glad to uh, shoot them. <laughs> but in my mind, I tell myself, and I have invented a place called Shark Island. And then every time I hear stories, these stories, my mind says that they're going to Shark Island. And that means that they're gone. In this way, I don't have to take out a gun and shoot them myself or have anybody else shoot them. Um, in jail, you're absolutely right. My husband worked in uh, Rikers in New York, and they definitely are separated. Uh, they're one of the most uh, killed in jail groups of people. That and, you know, basically like the people who turn other people in and whatnot, they get killed a lot too. But pedophiles, as soon as you get in there and you're found out, um, you're almost gone. And that's because a lot of them were victims themselves. So, you know, we know how common that is and where it can lead. That's the negative side of where they live. Now, as far as child abuse people that aren't sexually uh, assaulted, I think about them um, with their kids because basically it happens a lot in the families. A child, even though they're angry uh, at what the parent has done and has every right because either the parent totally affected their life, you know, in a change kind of way, which usually would be during the school years. They can, like, picture, teachers can pick them out if they wanted to where the child has, has problems because they show, they exhibit certain behaviors and, you know, that aren't, I couldn't even say not common because nowadays it is common. Um, but I don't, the child themselves wants that parent fixed. They don't want to be away from that parent totally. They want to be away from the abuse. But they right. also are related to the parent. So they're in the middle of like, what do I do? You know, you know this is still my daddy, this is still my mommy, that kind of stuff. They need more therapy thrown in than, and I would say probably throughout the child up until they're 18 because I do believe once 
you pick your hand or whatever else up, it's very hard to not do it again. So somebody really always needs to be somehow connected to the family to check up. Now, that's never going to happen because they're not funds put aside for that. They don't even have enough funds to cover um, what what's out there now. Um, and there's such a caseload that everybody, you know, every other kid seems like they're getting, like, overlooked. And this basically is what's happening. And it's it's out in the open, you know. Everybody knows about it. But I'm like on both sides of that, you know. If it's a drunk parent, I would like to have them automatically into a program. You know, somebody hook up with the family, make sure the parent, whatever, and go through that process. The last thing I would want to have to do to a child is to take them out of the home and put them in foster care. Now, a lot of people say it's safer in foster care, but it really isn't. And I've, I've gone through it. I've, I've worked with social workers, like, alongside them, and I've seen my share. And uh, there are good homes, but there's a lot of homes that are warehouses, and they're really not attentive to the kids, especially the, the special needs kids. You know, they, they started now putting them out in so many group homes, uh, that you have somebody come in once a week, but meanwhile the cops are there every day. So I would separate. Right. I would separate what the problem is as far as abuse. If there can be help, get the help first. If there's no hope, because the person, some people are like my brother, a total psychopath, and um, they should be separated and never reunited with their kids. They should actually be in jail in jail, but in general pop, you know, I wouldn't put them into the same category as pedophile. So that's where I stand on it. Well, let's continue on this as a theme. We can, you know, we can, of course, uh, uh, find other things to say that are ancillary type, you know, topics, but the, the, the central topic is, well, let me put it this way. Why don't we frame it like this? The cost of child abuse is astonishing. Astonishing. Uh, annually, uh, child abuse costs us billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in our country to deal with for all the costs that are related to it. And that's year after year after year. I believe in 2000, might have been 2008 or 9, they actually measured it, and it was 500 and something like, and don't hold me to this, but it was something like 550 million, a billion, sorry, billion dollars. Billion with a B. Uh, and that included things like, of course, the therapy and the, and the uh, you know, and the incarceration of predators, but um, also uh, the cost of, uh, of um, well, every cost that was related to child abuse and neglect, you know, really. And it, including, you know, it's, it's prevention. The cost, there's cost in setting up prevention programs. There's cost in intervention, which usually is this, the piece that uh, involves um, uh, law enforcement and, as you say, foster care and so forth, and also um, child protective services type stuff. That's that's all prevention costs. And then recovery costs, which is what we do. Uh, we try to do it. It doesn't cost anything at all from from our organization, but 
uh, we ask people to consider other types of therapies or t- types of recovery, and we explain them to them. And then they, they don't get it through NASCA, but they get directed by NASCA to get there. But anyway, the cost is astonishing. And people don't re- realize this. Of course, they, don't, they also don't realize, Lori, how many children are uh, abused every year. And it's, it's tens of millions in our country. And this is a worldwide epidemic. It's a worldwide problem. There is no place in the world that is not suffering at the, at the rate that we're suffering. It's pretty similar all around the world. In some places, of course, are worse. But we, we generally talk about 20% of the females and maybe uh, 25% of the males or slightly higher than that. We're not exactly sure, but, you know, a big number. Uh, uh, percentage-wise, of, ch- of children every year being uh, assaulted, being approached inappropriately, uh, being beaten, uh, and uh, it's it is extremely expensive. Even starting there, you know, to to deal with it as a pro- as the problem that it is. Um, so that's I think that's what the the guy was trying to. I don't know what they were talking about in the legislature. To be honest, it doesn't say that except that it was in a discussion of uh, Childhood Adverse Experiences, uh, CACs, or CAEs, uh, 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 ACE studies. Adverse Childhood Experiences is ACE, A-C-E. Um, and, um, you know, so it's, now you can't, um, you, you can't guarantee that a person who goes to lockup will come out, even if they get treatment in the lockup of any kind, will come out any better than they went in. In fact, they might get worse. They might learn stuff from fellow, fellow uh, you know, incarcerants uh, to improve their ability to uh, abuse kids on the outside. This happens a lot. They talk about uh, prison as being, you know, kind of um, the, the university for, for um, convicts, you know, for lawbreakers. When they go in there, they learn even more than they do when they're going in. So, um, I don't, I don't know where, uh, I don't know where this guy was coming from, but I do, and I, I was not going to bring this up, but I thought about it, and I said, you know, uh, it might make an interesting topic, and um, as long as we understand that NASCA itself does not do law enforcement, does not do. Um, does not follow uh, legal systems and so forth. We don't advise on the law. We don't help people with their cases. We don't we don't um, therapize unless unless we have a, a license to. Uh, you know, the majority of NASCA uh, people are people who experience child abuse. They don't have to have anything beyond that. They may not even have therapy themselves when they come to us. In fact, a lot of people, Lori, uh, are telling their story for the first time. When they come to us and they uh, and they do one of our radio shows, for example, and you know we don't, we don't to be able to go off and do very much good for a while, for years. However, we do know that you know when you when you tell your story, which is breaking the silence that we all almost all experience as kids and as as adolescents and as young adults. At some point, we break the we break the silence and hopefully in a in a productive way or in a healthy way, that eventually we will come to a place where we think we have, and correctly so, enough experience and background um, in in recovery to offer it to somebody else. 
but not at first. <laughs> at first, we are babes, you know, in the in the woods. <laughs> We're sheep, <laughs> but um, but eventually we do have, and that's one of the that's one of the things that we that that makes NASCA or, or organizations similar to NASCA effective. That we we can uh, generally by telling our story, we can attract others who have never told their story to come forward or to at least think about coming forward. And if they hear it, a story and then another story and then another story, over time they eventually realize that NASCA, for example, supports people who have not told their story before. We don't denigrate somebody because they waited 30 years. You know, We congratulate them for coming forward and we're very gentle with them as they tell their story for the first time, hopefully, or we should be. Um, and... Um, so this is, these are all, you know, sort of aspects of this. When we, when we have an incarcerant, as I started to say, and we release them, when they often are released into public being on uh, a, a three lists, actually, of uh, sexual assault people, uh, a, you know, list A, B, and C, basically, of, on which the lowest, uh, the lowest uh, penalty people, uh, the people who, uh, who were arrested because uh, they were caught uh, exposing themselves or, um, you know, peeing in a public place. So some of these people get arrested. That's a pretty low kind of crime compared to the middle-range people, which it does involve some abuse and touching and so forth of, of a child. Uh, but then the highest-rated ones are people who are really seriously um, sick. <laughs> and the, the court, um, you know, will... will Bring this. We'll consider how uh, the behavior of the person has affected society before they're uh, both, um, you know, sentenced, and whether they get on the registries, the sex registries, in what in what um, category. Uh, but when you get out, you're going to be in one of those categories. There's nobody that's put in for the little life, unless they involve um, homicide, which some that's. That's actually the worst kind of child abuse there is, and it's child abuse for a person to take advantage of a child to the point of killing them. That happens. Uh, uh, and, of course, then they, they are eligible for time incarceration or maybe even the death penalty, depending on the circumstances of multiple homicides or homicide with a second felony involved. In that. And then other states don't have it. And, and then it, it also depends on the state. So let me say that. We, we don't have a national system. It depends on what state you were abused in, the kind of justice you might get. Or, to say it another way, the case that you abused kids, the kind of justice you might experience. Uh, because every state is different. And every state has statutes of limitations that are different, has penalties that are different, has rules that are different. Uh, just in the same way that some states, it's a state decision to have, um, say, a death penalty, for example, um, and, but not all states do because it's not a federal issue. Fed, the, fed, the federal uh, laws do provide for a death penalty too, but not in state courts, and that's where they handle most of the sex abuse stuff in state courts uh, as opposed to um, they, some, some uh, have a – have a leg in both state and federal. In other words, the crime that was committed has an aspect that they can charge a federal offense to. And in those cases, in states that allow it, you might have uh, 
death penalty. But, uh, you know, most, most states do not, and most uh, sexual predators do not experience that kind of, that kind of penalty. Um, so that means they're getting out someday. You know, they're getting out someday. And although it's wonderful that we have these, you know, databases and registries for sex offenders, even in three different tiers, the fact is they don't work very well. Uh, we explored this years ago. We haven't done it for a while. But um, there was a time when no states were tracking anybody. And one of the states decided they were going to track, and then several followed suit, and then several more, and then several more, until almost virtually all the states, and perhaps it is all the states, are tracking child offense people, especially if they have offended at the highest level. And they're put on a, um, on a list that, and then a, a map is generated according to where they've landed after prison. Uh, and you can actually go to your own state and call up uh, that uh, database and, and enter you know, your uh, address and see how many predators live within uh, various distances from your home, like a half a mile, five miles, 10 miles. And you'll be shocked uh, how many there are if you've not done this before. Have you ever done that, Lori? It's, it's pretty amazing. Especially where I lived. Um, that was a problem. Every other house, it seemed more, they, the state was buying the house and they were making them into group homes and these people had to register. So everybody in the neighborhood knew who was doing what to who. And that's why I moved out. It was one of the reasons I moved out. It was just getting very, very bad. So um, I don't think dispersing them in the community, you know, even after they serve their time or any of that stuff, should be allowed. I mean, I think they should live in their own community of whatever it is that they, you know, are, have the propensity to do because they aren't really going to change, especially if they go to jail. I mean, they learn more things. They come out hard, and they came out that way because, that they can't survive unless they become hardened, you know. You, you, there's a bunch of killers in those jails. And if, if you're in general population, you get to see all different kinds of crime. Um, and a lot of people, I mean, a lot of the jails, oh, I don't know how many are on Rikers, but my husband's been in them. They have dormitories where they kind of just hang out. They don't really do anything. They get to watch TV, you know, play games with each other and whatever else it is. But it's really not like a lockdown type thing. Unless it's like, the, the, as you said, the more serious ones. And the thing that upsets me um, is the laws, that they are not the same in every state. Um, a lot of the children that have been murdered, if their parents are able you know, and aren't totally crushed and they find that strength to fight for their child, I've seen them go down to D.C. and talk to all kinds of people and there have been laws that have changed. And that is like a good thing, but, you know, what they had to get to to do it. There's people out there that have done it, and there are people out there that never get justice for their kids, their kids' murders, because of outdated laws. Um, one particular group, um, 
it's like I always called it justice for Darby, for Darby and Kiara. I followed their case from years and years. They've been on Dr. Phil, Dateline, every which way. And it's the grandmother, Cheryl, who had to fight just to update the laws. And it was in Montana, so it was not really like a very updated case at all. She spent so many years doing all her own work on her own time, um, out of her own pocket. And it's going on 12, 13 years, and she still hasn't gotten the justice she should have gotten for not only one of her grandchildren being murdered, it was 10 weeks later that the sister and the brother were separated by being murdered. That is not fair. Now, I know that when her life ends, you know, because she's she's up there and she's got health problems and her husband's got health problems, who is going to be there to get justice and to further the laws? We need more people to, who are aware of cases like this to actually become active, more politically active, even if they know from a person and whatnot and they have the time to do it, somebody really has to step in and get this nation like a blanket law that will cover every kind of abuse that there is. You know, it's the easiest and most efficient way to do it. And fighters is what we need. And fighters are coming out of the survivors, especially the activity that goes on in NASCA, because NASCA gives direction. Um, there are so many services that come that every kind of person, no matter where you meet, will somehow hook up with the right person to help them. And these people become fighters, and some of them go on to be uh, the leaders, and they get things done where at one time they would have never thought they could do it. Now, I've been on the show three times, and I don't remember how many years different, but it changed me. I had spoken about my child abuse, you know, for a while, but it wasn't until I came on to NASCA that I noticed the change in me from my first and my second show. And then years after that, uh, you asked me back again, and I am not the same person that I started out to be. I gained strength. I gained clarity. I gained just the ability to be more in tune to what to look for in other people, when to jump in. Is a whole lot of things that I became. And that, believe, I'm telling you for real, was from NASCA. That's, that's what you provide. And a lot of people who need direction, anyone who comes to me, I tell the story. I lead them right back to NASCAR, um, and they do go. There might be people on there listening. I mean, there's one guy on the panel, it's like during the week, a lot of times he shows up. He doesn't talk much, um, but he comes on, and I can see the difference in him because of the way the, the co-hosts and the hosts are, are speaking to him. You know, he's feeling comfortable. He's finding out which one he can talk to. And he's, 
he's made great strides since I first, you know, heard of him. So NASCA does work. To anyone out there who is listening, I'm telling you, go down to NASCA.org and go through every single service on that page, and it can take days and days and days. There are numbers. There are divisions of whatever it is that you need to seek out that you want to work on yourself. You are steered. There are programs. Anything in the world, once you make that decision to you you just don't want to keep secrets anymore. You want to tell your story. You want to get better. That's where to go, and it works. Right, right. And you know, I got a, um, a group of people that help out with this because this is all volunteer. You yourself are a volunteer, um, so nobody's paid in NASCA, even me. I'm the founder. I've never been paid, of course. Um, but the point is that what we are is. We're people who have survived our own child abuse, and many of us start at a at a at a uh, with a low level of experience. I know it's the gentleman you're talking about, and it is true that over over the last few weeks he's come on several times, actually a couple of months perhaps, and he is uh, really starting to blossom. He's actually making his own comments and so forth, which is um, really. Uh, According to what I understand of his personality, having listened to him a bunch of times, it's astonishing, and he's doing very well. Um, and that that gentleman may someday become, you know, an advocate himself by himself, or may, maybe he'll take up a role at NASCA of some sort. But it's it's uh, not unusual for for a child abuse victim who um, is new in recovery to eventually get to a place where uh, they they have the strength and the experience and the background and the, even the knowledge base to help others. And this is this is why this article that we're talking about, I, I don't understand uh, how the, I mean, maybe he was being tongue-in-cheek, I don't know, but the other legislators believed him enough to admonish him, you know, and not let him on committees and so forth so they know they know his background and, and his how serious he was. But um, geez, he he's talking about the cost of child abuse. We we do all the work we've done and, and all the work we've ever done for nothing, for free. Now if you can do it for free, then you can do it for uh, uh, you know a, a couple hundred dollars a week or whatever it is to get therapy. You know, and actually, that's that's a cost benefit for society. You know, um, but the, the the thing is that there's not a problem with money. There's enough money. The, the problem is how is it spent? And we are wasting our time, for example, in the in the incarceration of the of the criminal element um, when we believe that they're not going to ever get better, and we you know give them programs and so forth that try to train them. Now we have all kinds of uh, therapists and doctors and other people who are constantly attempting to find uh, a path by which a, a pedophile, for example, can get better. They've done it all kinds of ways. They've done it with surgery, like removing the testicles of the person. <laughs> They've done it with um, chemicals, like giving them a chemical that reduces their uh, interest in sex. Uh, and with therapies of all kinds. Uh, they've tried all these things, and they still try them. They, they try 
variations of these things over and over and over. They've never found anything that makes it better, which is why you and I have said tonight that it's unlikely, it's not impossible, I won't say impossible, but it's really unlikely for a person who has acquired, let's say, acquired an appetite for sex with kids to ever lose it. They're not going to lose it. And uh, so the best we can ever do is to separate them from our kids in society uh, if we want to, you know, really feel ourselves safe. Yet, it's, 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 yet all the costs of, uh, of, of issues of child abuse, you know, added up are billions of billions of dollars annually. So I don't know that this fellow was serious, but I get it, but I didn't, I wasn't even going to bring this up because it's not really something that NASCA would normally talk about. It's a little off our usual um, uh, theme, you know, our usual. Uh, so anyway, uh, it's a little off the beam of our theme, 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 theme. <laughs> um, let me just pause for a second and remind people that what they're listening to is the Stop Child Abuse Now show, which we do five days a week, five nights at 8 o'clock Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, and 5 Pacific. We do 90-minute shows, the majority of which are actually uh, people talking about their own history, their own story. That's on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday normally. Tonight, we did not have someone to do that, so we um, decided we would uh, do a discussion show. And that's what you're listening to tonight, anybody that's out there. We want you to know that you can call in and participate yourself, and we'd love to hear from you. The number to dial is the regular dedicated phone number for our shows, which is 646-595-2118, 646-595-2118. Please call in and please participate in this show. And you can... You, know, you can suggest another topic. We don't have to stay on this one. We've, we've discussed this one for quite a while, which is great. We've given it a lot of consideration and weight, but uh, there's certainly room for us to come up with another topic somebody may suggest, an issue somebody may suggest, and discuss that for the rest of the show. We, we still have uh, 35 minutes or so left in the show. Um, as I said, though, these the, the, the normal... Uh, cadence for shows is Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we do special guest shows, which are people telling their story. And then Tuesday and Thursday, we have people who are uh, hyphenates, I call them. They're people who are both a survivor and a professional. They've, they've earned some kind of status as a professional. They might be a, a therapist or a minister or, or a doctor um, or an activist of some sort. Uh, and they come on and they, they don't tell their story so much. I mean, they tell enough to qualify for whatever they are. But the, the majority of the show is about asking them questions that are related to the, their background, whatever it is. So that's, that's Tuesday and Thursday, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, special guests. And then we also have three shows a week, Lori, that are, um, that are uh, recovery shows, uh, we have a group, it's not, not a recovery group, but in the sense like a therapy roundtable group, but it is all made of people who are child abuse, uh, in recovery from child abuse. They're from all kinds of walks of life. We have one who's uh, Israeli. <laughs> he calls in from Israel. And we have another that's from down under, from, uh, 
from Australia. And, you know, it doesn't matter for any of these shows where you are, by the way. It's, the, it's whether you're awake at the time the shows are going on, because <laughs> they're live, and the meetings, too. The meetings, by the way, are Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday, and they're at 2 o'clock Eastern. So that's 1 o'clock Central, uh, noon Mountain, and 11 a.m. Pacific time. And there's, you know, there's three a week, and they're, they're also 90 minutes long. So, but this one is 646-595-2118, while the recovery ones are on Zoom. And you'll find the information about this, as Lori said, on the front page of our website, which is filled with information and tools and services. And right on the front page is the, uh, the, the room number that you go to on Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I don't see anybody else calling in, unfortunately. I was hoping that this would spur some interest, this topic we are on. But as I say, we don't have to stay on it, Lori. We can, we can go anywhere. In fact, I should yeah. probably ask you if you brought something with you. I was always curious. The, the uh, quietness tonight could be because Easter's coming. I think today is like Good Friday and people are out and about yes. doing their that kind of thing. My, yes, it is. I was curious. Um, just the future. I didn't know if they did it. Since child abuse is so common and a lot of the kids are already like generations of abuse and they spread out, you know, so what used to be thought of as abusive, the survivors themselves who are already hardened from their abuse, they probably raise, you know, their kids in a different kind of household. I've seen it happen, and I was wondering how many have actually got become so used to it that they don't want to get involved because not enough people are getting involved. They still deny that uh, it exists in their family or they don't know somebody or they just don't even want to deal with any of it. Uh, it used to be like you never talk about it, but in today's times, uh, it should be in the schools, you know. We used to, when I was with the club, I mean, trying to get into the schools to talk to kids about abuse, it was like pulling teeth. The, they still don't really have like a regular subject, and I really feel that they should. I mean, there's a lot of more, right. there's a lot more things that we, at NASCAR, uh, all of us, I mean, we can think of to do to almost not not like force them but more make them aware that you know we're not going away this is a subject that has gotten as you say all over the world and it's not healthy in any which way and when that happens the best place to get schooled when your child is in school so just yeah. as they have the subjects of health or gym or even math, whatever it is, they have to have a subject to be aware of uh, just to give them some kind of skills because there's a lot of kids in the schools, you know, with divorced parents and whatnot, and they're not even knowing what to do, where to go. They're trying to maintain grades and, and worried about, that kind of environment with friends and whatnot, but they don't have a place to get access 
actually until they become at least 16 years old, and then they can separate um, from where they are and then get help. But why wait that long? I mean, this is kids are like sponges, and I was always curious: has there been any more progress that you know of to get? Yeah. The speakers in schools or subjects totally dedicated to identifying stranger danger or what's going on in the house, what's good, what's not, and places for the little kids just to go, you know. Right. Parents work a lot of hours and kids are on their own a lot. It's just not safe. Well, I think this is a really good topic. We could probably finish out the show because it has a lot of aspects to it. But let's say this. It has been tried to teach uh, uh, sex sex, and sex assault and sex abuse topics in schools. In fact, one gal, Erin Marin, who uh, was from Florida, had been abused as a child, and it was by her nanny, I think, or her babysitter and she went to her father and complained and he heard her and he and he was an attorney so he helped her set up a nonprofit organization around the time NASCA was formed frankly he, and this nonprofit organization was there to um, the purpose of it was to go into schools and to go into legislatures I should say in states and try to convince them that they should they should pass a law that became known as Aaron's Law. Now, Aaron Marin, uh, had, you know, found that each legislature would take their own, you know, perspective, their own slant to these laws. But basically, the laws said that there shall be uh, the teaching of of these um, issues to children in school, and it was basically aimed at uh, elementary schools. In fact, some of them were were uh, supposed to be taught from. Uh, from like first grade through high school and a little bit more uh, complicated each year, a little more uh, adult, if you want, <laughs> each year because, you know, you don't teach, uh, you know, second graders the same thing you would teach junior high school kids. So they would add to the curriculum a little more uh, topics that were a little more likely to be appropriate for the age group. But anyway, that was the, that was the, that was the sense of it. Aaron um, became an activist in Florida, a very big activist in Florida, and got a big name there. And um, her father, being an, an attorney and in the uh, in the uh, circle of legislation in in Tallahassee, he was a, uh, an advocate, I guess it was for for I don't know what, but he became an advocate for child abuse on her behalf. And he helped her set up the nonprofit. He helped her uh, get funding. He helped her in lots of ways. In fact, she wrote her own book as a kid, and he helped her get that published and so forth. And then when, um, when they were ready, she started traveling around the country and visiting state legislatures, making this argument that I'm talking about tonight. And she actually succeeded in getting such uh, legislation passed in, I think, the majority of the United States. Uh, but what happened was the... Uh, the legislation that they passed inadvertently said, uh, and not inadvertently, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, anyway, uh, it, it, they, they almost always said um, that there shall be the teaching of these topics to school-age kids. 
when you say shall, it means there will be, you know, someday. It means will be someday. In other words, if they'd have written it so that it said, uh, we are doing it, that's different than saying we shall do it. And when we shall do it comes up, what they generally did, and I'm making some generalizations here, but what generally happened was that the states created a sort of a task force in each case. And that task force would be compiled of people who had various uh, interests in the issue of child abuse. And they'd come together and they would uh, be trying to devise the curriculum and maybe even the, the, the literature that would be put into the school. And, and they, could never find, they could never do it. That's the problem. The problem is that when you get to the, to the level of presenting something that might happen, uh, there are, it's, frankly, it's, it's parents who um, object to having their, their child taught anything sexual. And of course, they consider this stuff sexuality. So, you know, <laughs> they, don't, they did not want their children to do it and they were able to rise up in huge numbers to present themselves as being against the idea of teaching uh, sex and sex abuse issues to children. Now, it was, some of it was as innocuous as, you know, um, teaching correct language in gym class for the word penis, for example, you know, or vagina, you know, uh, or health class maybe. Uh, it, these things didn't pass. And other things were as involved as when do you talk about what uh, what you know, uh, what intercourse was. And that's for later in, you know, in the child's development and so forth. But this is why, even though there was a really good faith effort on Aaron's uh, behalf, never, none of the states ever <clears throat> came up with that curriculum. Now, I can tell you that the province of Ontario on its own did come up with a, a set of, uh, of uh, goals that went from from grade school, from all through grade school and into uh, high school, each year getting a more, little more complicated and a little more quote adult unquote with topics. It, it put it in place, and and the thing is that it didn't take but a few years before it got dismantled again because of the complaints of the parents. Again, it's it's you know if you put this out as something you're considering, the PTA will rise up or the, or the you know, the, whatever they call it in Canada. The PTA, though, will, will rise up and object, which is so sad because they're, you know, they're, they're biting off their nose to spite their face, right? Um, we all agree that child abuse is a horrible thing. We all know now, as you said, the statistics of it, which are horrible uh, and worldwide, and I, I called it an epidemic um, years ago, and, um, you know, Kind of like when COVID came along, we started using the word epidemic. Well, we, I was calling it an epidemic of child abuse for years ago because that's how it spreads. That's how it is. Um, and so these things have been tried. Um, and um, nobody's found the magic formula for how to present it in such a way that uh, the government would support it, would put it together. And I, I think you can do it in certain private schools. But you can't do it in public schools, and that's the thing. You know, public schools are where we where we approach most of the kids, um, and 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 that and their government schools, private schools, are not. So um, there's separate rules for private schools about how, what they decide their curriculum is going to be. 
there's other things that are required, like math is required in all schools, <laughs> but things like child abuse issues are not. So I don't know if you were aware of Erin Marin. She, she's been around quite a while, but she stopped, uh, as far as I can tell, promoting her um, her bill or bills similar to it after having, I think she won the attention of 30-something states that passed some version of Erin Marin's law, Erin's law, um, and but none of them implemented it as far as I know either. Um, and she kind of is not on the radar at this point. She was a guest of NASCA's on our show here a couple times. Um, and then I made the unfortunate comment that I was, that I kind of, what I just made with you, <laughs> that I was aware of the fact that she had done, you know, great work in doing the present presenting, but that none of the states uh, were yet uh, implementing uh, an Aaron Marin's law. And I think she got mad that she never came back. <laughs> but it's the truth, you know. Um, yeah, we have a need. Absolutely. Children don't get this by osmosis, and their parents don't teach it to them. And we're always telling them, you know, we recommend that people uh, get themselves involved in what's called darkness to light, uh, stewards of children, darkness to light. And the, the, the uh, website is at D, the letter D, the number two, the letter L, d2l.org. That's an organization that does wonderful work in presenting these kinds of facts to small groups of uh, adults. They uh, they want them. They want you to uh, coordinate. You know, not many, maybe six or eight or ten uh, adults at a time, and they'll come out to you, no matter where you are. They'll come out to you and do these presentations. They bring literature. They bring, I think, slideshows or something on their computer from various aspects of this, and the whole thing lasts a few hours. Uh, and it costs almost nothing. It's like ten dollars a person, something like that. Uh, it's a terrific organization. Now we would like that to be a standard thing, but people people need to be educated about it to even exist. And then you have to hit, as you said, you have to hit people who are interested. And how do you pick them out? Most people don't want to hear it. It's a too ugly topic. That's why in our mission statement I wrote the fact that what we're trying to get them to do is to get over the taboo, I called it a taboo, of discussing childhood uh, uh, adverse experiences of sexual abuse, violent assault, physical abuse, and, uh, and neglect. I called it a taboo, and it is. They want to turn away and say, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not talking about that to my kids, you know? Um, so unfortunate. Um, the original thing you, you brought up, Lori, we could also talk about it. I'm sorry I went on about that, but which is why don't um, families that have abuse uh, in, uh, whose parents might have had abuse in their own families uh, change their stripes when they're growing old? And it's just because, you know, it is more common for people to follow the pattern of behavior that they grew up with than not. It's hard to change your pattern of behavior. And you have to be, that's, that's where you have to be taught as an adult not to do it, not to hit your kid, you know, not to have sex with your kid. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's much easier to continue the behavior that you grew up with and uh, much more likely that that will occur too, which was your original question. Uh, and so we have 
you know, this is why we talked about breaking the cycle uh, in our own lives or in our own families, that some of us who are child abuse victims and get into recovery will break the cycle with our own families, behaving differently in our own families because we're now knowledgeable about it and even recognizing what, what happened to us in our youth. Uh, that's, even recognizing it alone is a, big, is a big deal, you know. So we will try to change the behavior that we have with our spouse and so forth and with our children and therefore not pass on the bad behavior that may have been for generations uh, in our family, you know, generation after generation after generation. Because that's what we find is, is uh, more the case. Um, so there we go. <laughs> I talked a little long, sorry. Well, you yeah, you're doing good. You're definitely good. <laughs> okay. You know, it's what's sad, you know, some of these psychiatrists and therapists and whatnot um, have it in their family. Um, sometimes I would, um, yep. use my niece as an example because she she knows what happened in our family. My sister's like two and a half years younger than me. Um, and she's seen it, uh, and she was one of the same things. She rebelled and hated her mother, you know, the whole thing. And it was somebody because she repeated um, what her mother did. I met her like 10 years later. We had a break because of the family. I just wanted to get away from them. And then when we met, I found her doing the exact same thing with her kids. As, as my sister was doing, and she is a therapist. And I was talking to her about um, the family, uh, the extended family, because I'm sure uh, my sister, my drug-induced sister, who my niece is actually giving her money for drugs, which makes no sense, I told her how it came to be that her mother is like that. I wanted her to have more information on her so she would have understanding so she would stop what she was doing with her kids and give them a chance to at least be who they were, you know, give her some background. And I told her, of course, you know, my story. And as a therapist, she totally denied that anything had ever happened to me or her mother. And oh she thought my brother was a wonderful uncle and her grandfather, which was my father, uh, I warned her what he was going to do to her. And she threw such a fit and actually locked me out of her life again. And this is this therapist. Now, that's why I say that you have to go through a lot of people so you can figure out where that therapist is coming from. Are they coming from a good family and they choose that as a career in college? Or are they just there because it was an easy course for them to grow up in it? And, you know, they're just repeating the same thing and going on and on like that. So it's a very choosy world then when you finally do come out to talk and tell about your story because you don't know who's safe. Just as you weren't safe at home, there is no stability. You don't know like other people who are really stable. So being that there are so many people available, again, and I keep going back to you, but in there 
is where I think more stuff is being done for the, for anybody um, than is out there. You know, because like you said at PTAs, yes, I've been to the PTA meeting. They want nothing to do with child abuse. They don't want to hear it. Um, I mean, if they make storybooks for little tiny tots as they're learning parts of their body and whatnot, why would they stop teaching that, you know, when it comes to the important years, you know, when they're out on the playground experiencing it anyway, you know, why why deprive them of information? It didn't make sense to me. So it's like a, a, you, it's a hit or that's miss exactly, thing. <clears throat> that's exactly where I learned my information, and it wasn't very good <laughs> information. <laughs> but it was on the playground. My parents yeah. never said a thing about anything sexual or sex or even body, you know, stuff, nothing. Um, and they were not dumbo heads. They went. They both went to college, you know. They both had educations and backgrounds and so forth. But my sister and I never were taught. Well, I shouldn't say my sister wasn't. I don't know if my mother had a talk with her, but I doubt it because uh, I, I didn't hear a thing from um, from my whole life all the way. And I was, you know, I was abused in um, – well, I guess it was late grade school and into high school, both both grade school and high school. Um, and, and I learned it on the playground because I didn't know what was happening to me. My parents had never talked about it. But I, uh, you know, kind of put my ear to the ground and I learned these things that, you know, were going on in the playground. That they were wrong, <laughs> but that was what I got. Um, so it's um, it's really unfortunate because... When, as I say, we started out this show with talking about the cost of child abuse and whether it would be less expensive to uh, put the kid away, you know, kill him, <laughs> than have him. But, but uh, you know, I thought that was a silly remark, but it, was, it made the papers in Alaska, you know, for the, it, it was in the Alaska legislature and discussed there, and I don't know. I don't They're very bored over there. They must be. They have what's to be. <laughs> It's ridiculous. Well, silly. It was, well, silly, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It was suggested to me as a topic for tonight's show, so I went ahead with it. Now, the fellow that suggested it didn't, didn't come, um, but, you know, I, I guess it was because I, I didn't immediately jump on his suggestion as a great idea. I didn't. I, I, I've had to think about it for a while because I don't want to promote um, – on NASCA, on our, anything that we do, and certainly on the radio show, which is a public forum, anything that's not appropriate to our mission statement. And I don't feel this is, you know, at least not on point for our mission statement. You could you could argue, and that's what we've done tonight, that off to the side of our mission statement, topics like this could be discussed. But we don't we we want people to recognize that we are we have a singleness of purpose. We call it singleness of purpose, which is child abuse and trauma, period. We, we do it from two aspects. We educate as best we can, and that's for everybody, not just for child abuse victims, but for, you know, the general population. There's, there's a lot of misinformation out there, too, and we want them to come here and anybody who's interested in this topic to get good information. And then secondly, to help people get into their healing. You know, the healing, we call it the healing journey that they can get on, um, not by telling them they have to do this or they have to do that, by telling them, 
you know, what's available, what our experience has been, our own personal experience, but also just society's experience. And we will, by way of explaining all the different varieties of ways, there's a lot of them. You know, there's psychiatry and therapy and counseling and uh, psychoanalysts, but then there's all kinds of other things like EMDR, 12-step programs, which is what I did. You know, uh, there's hypnosis, you know, on and on and on. And then there's things that like animal therapy and art therapy and dance therapy, those kinds of things. They're, they're all useful. Yoga, right, Reiki, I mean, all of them. And, you know, the point is to get on something and start, get started with something. And, uh, but we don't tell people what they have to do because when NASCA was formed, it was formed with the idea that, uh, that there were lots of places that were, uh, or there weren't lots, but the ones that I could find that had rules that I found objectionable. I, didn't, I, don't, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I, didn't, I objected to being told what to do. Uh, it could be because I'm an alcoholic too, but anyway, um, either one could be, you could say it was either one, the child abuse or the alcohol and drug use. But, it, you know, tell me, tell me what I have to do and I'll be likely to do the opposite. So in any case, <laughs> there are lots of places, that, you know, that had rules. Uh, you have to do this and you must do that and you can't transfer over here. Oh, please. And also lots of places that had specific uh, groups that they would serve, but they wouldn't serve somebody else. So, you know, for that, for that matter, we're not, um, we're not, uh, you know, a Jewish group. We're not a woman's group. We're not, you know, uh, um, we're not a, a, a group from us, from another organization, you know, we allow anybody from uh, any stripe, any background, any religious background, any ethnicity, any part of society, upper class, middle class, lower class, doesn't matter who you are, males and females, of course, and transgender, everybody. If they, if they have a desire to learn about child abuse, they can come here, and we call them members of the NASCA family. We don't, we don't test them, and we don't even charge them. That's another thing that really bothered me. Some of the places I went to, they wanted hundreds and hundreds of dollars to go on a, like a workshop. <laughs> and I said, workshop? Why can't you, you know, offer something like, because I was, I was used to AA. AA doesn't talk, cost anything, right? You pass a basket, basically, or a hat in the middle of the meeting, generally speaking. And if you have a dollar or two or five, you drop it in the hat. But if you don't have a dollar, you're not asked to leave. You just pass the hat to the next person. And that's always been the case. So my, that was my experience, that there was no pressure about having to fit any kind of mold in order to uh, do a, a, a recovery group. And that's why NASCA is the way it is, you know. So I I, I gave up on anything that was, I thought, in, uh, inexcusably tough on me <laughs> or was um, uncomfortable, even uncomfortable. So you'll find that NASCA is a very comfortable place to be because it's all of us, and we're all you know, for every walk of life, and have every kind of recovery too, frankly, and we all fit together. We're the NASCA family, we call it the NASCA family. We That's have, exactly um, true. Exactly yeah. true. Yeah. We have eight minutes like left, Lori. I want to make sure you understand that. I don't want to close you out. I feel like I've talked too much. 
But maybe no, I, you did fine. Maybe... You did fine. Okay. okay. <clears throat> I mean, all your information is good. I always like to listen to you. Well, I'm not gonna. Um, I'm not gonna complain about it. I. I I have a lot to say, <laughs> you know, but, but I know so you, you know, your story is amazing. If you ever get a chance, let me let's talk to the audience here to hear Lori's story, which you will, because uh, we invite people back, tell their story, you know, multiple times. And we wait a few months in between, obviously, but Lori has told her story a bunch of times and it's amazing what she's gone through and where she's come to. And now I know Lori, of course, and she she mentioned she was with Nazca three different times. I think she said, "I've known her since the first time." You know, <laughs> and you have grown unbelievably. You know, from that yeah. unbelievably. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> wow. I have to go back. I'm like, hmm, now what? Yeah. Oh, I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. what's going? On? I know I'm different. I uh, the process. That's the whole thing. It's the process once you start telling your story that happens in your head after you come on the show. You don't realize it's yep. happening, but something changes right. in you. And right. I just picked up on the change and just kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going. You know, yeah. I thought I was at the end, but like I said, you know, here I am. And if it wasn't for NASCA, you know, coming out, I can't get out of my house. <laughs> Part of my story is that I take care of a severely mentally ill child, and I am literally the entire staff of a psych ward having to deal with him for the past year. So I can't get out to any of these places to do, like, a lot of stuff. I don't even live on the grid anymore. But here at NASCA, I can do, you know, what I want to do. I feel comfortable. It's a come one, come all place. And any time that I could be of any use, I'm here, you know, I'm still in my house watching, you know, the nuts in the house. I'm sorry I phrase it like that, but you have to after <laughs> so many years because it's just so crazy. Like, who would do this? I says, I should right. get paid for what I'm doing, but you, yeah. you don't. You do it from your heart. And that's what I got from NASCA, and that's how you improve right. my life. So I thank you. Yeah. Well, you're you're welcome, I, you know. NASCA wouldn't be NASCA unless there was a constant flow of people who are new. At one time, I was new, but it, but before that, I was uninformed, you know, and that's how it is. And we are keeping the secret, most of us, until we become informed and until we run into something like a NASCA or perhaps a, a person in recovery break their anonymity to us. Um, you know, we don't know that there's a way out. We feel like this will never change. I'll always be this way in our head, like you say. Um, and I'm a terrible person. I've made so many mistakes. I'll never be able to make them up. I come from a terrible family, blah, blah, blah. So our sense of ourselves so degenerating, you know, that we um, we can't see the light for the, for the, for the train coming on us. <laughs> but, you know, we, um, we really do uh, – uh, when we tell our story, experience uh, a lightness, kind of a lifting of a burden that we've had forever. And, you know, unfortunately, going back to what we were just saying, the topics we were just talking about, it takes decades most of the time 
before a person can come to the conclusion that there is recovery for them too and do something about it. So it's, you know, it's often in a person in their 40s who maybe was abused when they were 10, you know, to, to um, get involved in, a, in an ASCA or whatever they're going to get involved in and start their what we call healing journey. Uh, it's it's such a shame because this should be available in every community, uh, and it's not. I mean, NASCA is. It's online, but we don't have meetings and so forth everywhere. It would be great if we did, but, uh, you know, we can only do what we can do, and unfortunately, there aren't enough of us yet. We would think there were, but there aren't. Um, and every time somebody gets into recovery, it seems like there's five people that get into trouble, you know, because this, this thing doesn't get solved, this thing called child abuse. You know? That's a spread. That's a spread because it's so common. You know, yep. Everybody's just used to the violent world, you know, and the kids get lost. Yeah, it's just not right. right. No, it's not. And it's, you know, you would say it's sad, except that we know that recovery is available in lots of different ways, as I just listed some of them. You know, there are there are ways to start to heal. And once you're started on your healing journey, you'll find other things to do, too. And, you know, uh, you'll add them to the menu of what you use for uh, recovery. Now, for, for example, there are people that use ministry only, you know, their church. That's fine. If it's good for them, that's fine. Um, you know, I was abused in my ministry, which was Catholicism, so... I'm not likely to go use that, but I use other things, you know, to to, uh, to start to heal and feel like more of a person. But it never goes away, to be honest. You know, I just want to mention this one thing before we close that, you know, you brought up that you thought that you were done and then you found out you weren't and then you thought you were done and you found out you weren't. Well, that's common with all of us, that we get on our journey and we think, wow, I've made a lot of progress. I don't need to go to those shows anymore, you know, <laughs> but yes, you do because that is, uh, it catches up to us if we don't. So we have to sort of stay on top of it. We have to talk to others and to ourselves. We're in bad company, you know, <laughs> so, but talking to Lori, I'm in good company. <laughs> Thank you. And I really appreciate, I really appreciate your being with me today because I had to do this show alone. It would be horrible. <laughs> Ah, uh, no, I wouldn't. Don't underestimate yourself. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're funny are, you're on wonderful top of to... informative. <laughs> you're wonderful, and I really appreciate it. And it's time for me to play the music and get out of here. So let me thank everybody for being with us tonight. Invite them back uh, Monday through Friday at this hour uh, for other Stop Child Abuse Now shows. And let me say, as I always do, may God bless you and the children of the world. And God bless adult survivors of child abuse. Good night, Lori, and thank you again. Good night. You have a good one. Love Talk Radio.